I hate waiting. You know, I absolutely detest it. And I particularly detest standing in queues. I know I'm British, like probably many of you, and, and we're supposed to love it, aren't we? We're supposed to, we're known across the world for waiting in queues. And I absolutely hate it. I have a full on aversion if I'm in Asda or Lidl or wherever it is. And uh, I come to the, the counter, I'm just sort of scanning the whole shop, everything within my view, just to try and find the, the shortest line to stand in. And, and, and when I'm there, I don't know if you do this, but I start surveying the other lines and begin to see, look, if, could, could I save seven seconds if I move over to that line? And I do that thing where, you know, as soon as you do it, don't you? As soon as you move over to that line, the line you've left looks shorter because you've vacated your position in it. Is this only me? And you begin then to get sort of regret, cue regret about the line that you've left. I just hate, I hate waiting. I hate waiting in queues. I see a picture like this one taken from some kind of airport lounge and I think, gosh, anywhere, God, but there. Send me anywhere, but not there. I hate being stuck in traffic. That's another example. Do you know that thing when you're on the motorway, it's all slowing down and you think, okay, which lane? Which lane? Which lane is going to get me there quicker? Some research was done on this, by the way, and I think the answer was the middle lane. But I'm always thinking, the outside lane, the inside lane, it's never the lane I'm in. That's, that's the key thing. And then I, I saw this uh, picture a few years ago. You know, you get this when you're stuck in traffic and... I was, uh, saw this on, online a few years ago. It says, if you can't see it for whatever reason, you're not stuck in traffic. You are traffic. Important shift uh, of mindset there. And I don't know if uh, any of you recognize, let's see if we can get this working. I don't know if any of you recognize this sound. You probably won't. Anybody? Dial up, 14.4, baby. <laughs> 28 seconds, just nostalgia. Some of you are looking at me so blankly, you're like, what? Fiber, fiber. All right. That was, for those of you who are uninitiated, that was dial-up modem. That was, that, was, that, that was when you used to get on the internet back in the old days. You know when the internet just started 30 years ago, we just celebrated the anniversary, celebrated the anniversary of internet. <laughs> What used to happen is, used to, used to, some of you literally don't know what I'm talking about, you used to go into your, the one room where there was a computer, no tablets, the one room where the computer was, you'd sit down, you'd press get online or whatever it was, and you'd hear that noise, and then you were in the middle of it, you were about to load up your first web page, it had taken you 17 minutes to get there, and somebody would pick up the phone, <laughs> and you had to start the whole thing again, it was awful because it was all about waiting. And I hate waiting. And it seems I'm not the only one. We as a culture are obsessed with the idea of instant gratification. We want what we want, when we want it, and when we want it is right now, if not five minutes ago. You want a meal, dinner, in 90 seconds, students are like, amen. <laughs> Without any effort, all you have to do is perforate the lid, stick it in there. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking about the microwave. You can have it. 
You want to speak to a distant friend without getting out of your front door, without getting on the bus or a plane or whatever. No bother. FaceTime, Skype, WhatsApp. It is possible. You want to know the answer to any question without the indignity of doing a degree. Let me introduce to my friend, Siri, who has all the answers and can teach you everything what you need to know. You want to go to church without getting out your pajamas? You want to sit in the comfort of your home? You want to listen to your favorite preacher every week from the other side of the world? Listen to your favorite Hillsong United songs? Yes! You can do it. Podcast church. You don't even have to deal with the person next door who bothers you. You want to experience the the intimacy of relationships, maybe even sexual relationships, without the, the difficulty, the bother of covenant relationship, of dating, of wedding prep, all that stuff. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we now have Tinder. The truth is, there's nothing we hate more than waiting. It slows us down. It slops our progress, our ability to get where we want to go. And yet, waiting is absolutely central in the Christian life. I would argue in human life, to become a mature person, leave aside even for a second a mature Christian, just to become a mature person, you have, to become, you have to become somebody who's used to, who's schooled in the art of waiting. We've just entered into a season called Lent. And I know many of us maybe don't even know what Lent's about, but it's the 40-day period that stretches from Shrove Tuesday to Easter Sunday. And it is a time of waiting. The word Lent comes from an old Germanic word, Lenkton which just means lengthen, really. I mean, it's a, it's a, it means long. And, and the sense is that um, it's probably because at this time of year, the days are getting longer. Or maybe it's just because Lent feels really, really long. <laughs> For those of you who've given up TV, you're like, yeah, it really does. Somebody said to me this morning, Johnny, I'm really enjoying Lent, except I couldn't watch the rugby union yesterday, and that was really difficult. I was like, I feel it, I feel you. And it mirrors Lent significant because it's core part of the biblical story. In Lent, we remember the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness, waiting, having been liberated, having been released from slavery in Egypt, waiting to be let into the promised land. A full 40 years. And and we also remember Jesus, 40 days, waiting in the wilderness. Having been baptized, having gone through the Jordan, or gone into the Jordan and been baptized, having done that, his waiting to be sent into, to release into all that God had for him. Lent mirrors these two stories. And so we've got to ask the question why? Why Lent? Why waiting? Why is it an important part of the life of following God, following after God? Well, it's important for Israel because they needed a time of purification. One theologian said, it was one thing getting Israel out of Egypt. It was quite another thing getting Egypt out of Israel. They'd been in slavery for such a long time. 
They still behaved like slaves, even though they were ready to go into the promised land. And God had to shift some things in them. He had to prepare them to purify them for living a different kind of life. Now, Jesus didn't have that same issue. Jesus didn't need any purification. But the sense we get from the story is that he still did need to finish his preparation. He wasn't fully ready for his ministry until he went through the wilderness. So that's what Lent's about. It's about purification. It's about preparation. So what's the preparation for? What's the purification about? Well, for Israel, it's about the promised land. It's about getting to the place, the destination, the good space that God has for them. For Jesus, it's about getting into the midst of the world to do good, to, to spread the good news of, his own, of the kingdom come. And to, to live it out, it's about getting to the cross, about opening up God's good future in the empty tomb. And for us, it's about experiencing Easter. It's about getting to grips with the goodness of God. It's about living a life of fullness and life and joy and grace. The point of waiting isn't just to hang out in the wilderness forever. It's to get to the party. Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, is on the other side of the wilderness. And there's no shortcut to Pentecost. We've got to walk through the wilderness just like Jesus did. Because even Jesus had to do it. And this is what we read in Luke chapter 4, as Will's already read to us. And we're just going to focus tonight on the first two verses. And this is what we read. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Notice this. Jesus enters the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time I read this, I was like, whoa. Let's take a moment there. Why on earth does Jesus need to do anything at this point? He's got everything, surely. He's just had an incredible emotional and spiritual high. The kind of high that we all would want. He's just been baptized. That The Holy Spirit has descended upon him and filled him. He's heard the voice of his father saying, yes, this is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. He is now full up of God's spirit. Surely he's ready to go. Surely he's just, just send him out there, God. But no, there's something more. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, but there is yet more for him. Why? He's already got God's power within him. Surely he could just go and do the stuff. I think, I think the, reason, the reason that Jesus has to go through this final stage of preparation has to do with how his power is going to be used. You see, the greatest gift that Jesus has to give to the world is not naked, raw power. The greatest gift Jesus has to give to the world is submitted power. Power that is, has first been offered to God. That's what's happening here. 
So Jesus is filled with the Spirit and then goes into the wilderness. And it says he's led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Now I recognize that the wilderness for us, 21st century Nottinghamshire dwellers, like we, we don't see many wildernesses, unless you're sort of from Africa or somewhere else, where that's a bit more common for you. Like, you know, maybe an urban jungle would be like the closest we get. But a wilderness is a, is a place of dryness. It's an arid place. It's a place where nothing grows. It's a place where there are no diversions or distractions. You know, in the wilderness, you want to flick the TV on to numb the boredom. You can't. There's no electricity in the wilderness. It is a place of boredom. The wilderness is a place of loneliness at times. It's a place where your relationships don't necessarily get off the ground. The wilderness is unproductive. The wilderness is mundane. The wilderness is menial. It isn't a place of spiritual high. It's a testing ground. One scholar said, the wilderness represents the proverbial place of testing Israel's covenant loyalty to God since it was there that the wilderness generation continually questioned God's presence, rebelled against his leadership and toyed with idolatry. Like Israel in the wilderness, Jesus is there under divine direction. And his loyalty to God is put to the test. The wilderness is a place of testing. It's often for us a really difficult space. It's dry. It is dusty. And it is lonely. I had a time, a significant period of my life. It lasted somewhere between three and five years at the very least of wilderness time. Particularly it was after, again, just as... I'm going to just recognize how this strange success is coming out. Just as Jesus experienced, it was after a time of real spiritual high. Now, there, pretty much the, uh, the comparisons end, I'm afraid, but it was after a time of real spiritual high. I'd just come back to faith in a pretty remarkable, for me, a remarkable way. I'd experienced God's goodness. I was, I was overwhelmed by his grace. I, I, I felt like his power and his mercy had touched me in a, a really... Yeah, important way. And I'll tell you what, I was ready to go. Come on, Lord. Me and you, you and me, let's take the world on. Come on, I'm ready to preach wherever you would send me. I've got some great ideas for how we might completely redefine the way we do everything around here, Lord. I've got some gifts. Would you like me to share them? And it was as if God said, not so much. But I've got a basement for you, Johnny. And I worked for three years during that period. I worked for a company called MLS, which now no longer exists. And I'll leave you to figure out whether I had any part in that. And I worked as a PA to the managing director of this company. I wasn't a particularly good PA. I did my best, but my best wasn't all that good. And I tell you what, I made a lot of cups of tea in that time. And I worked literally in a basement. And, and often, particularly in the winter, I would go into the basement sort of 8.30, 9 o'clock, or whatever it was, and it was dark. And I'd come out 5.30, 6, whatever it was, and it was dark. And a lot of my existence, I'd get on a tube, I'd go home or a bus or whatever it was, it was dark. And it was a metaphor 
for the life that God had me in. And my cousin, my saving grace was this, this friend, my cousin who worked there also. And honestly, we got pretty desperate in this time. We would have the same Sainsbury sandwich every lunch. And we would go into the park around this area. It was a pretty grotty area of London. You know, we would go into this park and we would sit and just talk for the hour and then go back to our desks and carry on. And we actually were so desperate. We, there were so many pigeons, right? We named pigeons. Like there were pigeons who we knew by name. Uh, genuinely, that is how bad it got. You know, in that time, I thought I had so much to offer. God plunged me into obscurity. It was an arid time. It was boring. It was so menial. It was so mundane. I came out of university and I thought I was the next whatever. I thought I had things to share, things to bring. And God said, look, I, re- I need to, if you're going to be useful to me, I need to break you. I need to shape you first. I'll tell you what happened in the wilderness. I learned to feed myself in the wilderness. You know, I would get the 133 bus from, Amy and I just got married at this point or towards the end of this time, and I'd get the 133 bus from Streatham Hill to Borough, which is where this was, this, this role, this job. And I'd sit on that and I'd read the scripture, I'd just read the Bible. It was just this time in the morning, just me and God. Noise, or if you've ever got the 133 bus, you know it's so loud. There's people next to you, you know, they've got earphones, but they're not using them. Their phones are just blaring without the speaking. You think, could you not just plug in? Do I have to listen to that music as well? But for sure, I did. And I just learned to feed myself. There was one particular pastor, my favorite preacher, a guy called Rich Nathan, and I listened to pretty much all of his back catalog. There are some sermons of his that I could repeat almost verbatim, and there are some sermons of his I have repeated in this place. Almost verbatim. You know, for me, the wilderness was a hard, hard time. And it didn't last like three weeks. It was at least three years. And I'll tell you, I wouldn't trade that time for anything. Anything. There is nothing you could give me. That was a precious time. But it was difficult. There was temptation in the midst of it. The temptation to try and get another job, to short-circuit the process. I tried so many times to get other jobs. Jesus was tempted too in the wilderness. It says where for 40 days, he was tempted by the devil. Now, this gets a little bit tricky here. God sends, God leads, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. Yes. To purify or to work on him, to prepare him for what's next for him. But God is not, and, and in one sense you might say that's a testing process. In the same way that metals are tested, they're refined, they're prepared for their use, but it is not a tempting. God does not envision Jesus being tempted. God does not lead anybody into temptation. But Satan, recognizing this opportunity, seizes upon it and begins to test and to tempt Jesus. And these temptations, as we're going to see in the next three weeks, strike right at the heart of Jesus' mission and his identity. And I think that's important that we, we grasp that. Because there are many of us who are in times of temptation, we, our sort of theology, our understanding of who God is, and uh, it sort of gets messed up a little bit. 
We begin to think that maybe God's tempting us. God's sent this into our lives to teach us a lesson. And I just want to say, no, that isn't the way God works. God will lead us into times where he prepares us and purifies us. But he won't test us. But on the other hand, there are those of us who as soon as it gets difficult, as soon as life becomes a little bit tougher, as soon as following Jesus isn't one mountaintop experience after another mountaintop experience, we begin, begin to become disillusioned. You know, we've become spiritual experience junkies. And I want to say to you, yes, there are moments of great mountaintop experience in the life of Jesus and in the life of the great saints throughout history. And yet, there's a whole lot of mundane, simple obedience. Following one step after the other. In fact, most of life is that. Most of life. Most of life is one foot in front of the other, in front of the other. Most of life isn't spiritual highs. Most of life is just simple obedience. And in the midst of this experience, Jesus begins to wrestle. And he wrestles with Satan, with testing, with temptation. And many of us have known that wrestle. Many of us wrestle in the wilderness with temptation. Many of us are overcome at times by temptation. And that's part of, part of the wilderness. But the goal of the Christian life isn't to wrestle with Satan. The goal of the Christian life is to wrestle with God. And the whole point of the wilderness is to get to a place where we overcome by God's grace some of those things that hold us back, that we might become people who wrestle for greater blessings for ourselves and for others. And to do that, we need a whole dose of grace of the Holy Spirit and each other's help. Let me illustrate this another way. There's, there's a spiritual author, a guy who has, I think, the best name in the world. His name is Ronald Rollheiser. That's a cool name, isn't it? You'd be pretty buzzed if you had that name. And Rollheiser talks about three stages of discipleship, three stages of growth in faith. And he says the stage one, which is the struggle to get our lives together. I stick with me here. I know this is, this might be new to some of you, but I think this is really important, particularly for, uh, well, for actually for all of us. Stage one is the struggle to get our lives together. This stage begins at birth. It is kicked on at a new level through puberty. And typically it goes into our 20s. Many people, there are increasingly, I think as adolescence is delayed, this stage is being delayed also. And we're having people in their 30s and even 40s and beyond still in this stage. But this stage isn't meant to go much beyond your 20s. This is the struggle to get life together. This is the struggle to find out who we are to get hold of our, our vocation, if you like, our sense of being, our identity, and to begin to bring our major urges 
under control. Not to be dominated by them, but begin to subject them to God. For this, uh, for you, this might look like beginning to build a life, maybe uh, finding a life partner, uh, getting married, or it might mean committing to a life uh, calling to celibacy. It might be uh, a career or, or some kind of training towards where you feel God is leading you. It might be buying a house or something like that. These are like the big weighty building blocks to a functional human life. That's the first stage, and that stage quite quickly leads us into the second stage. Once you sort of get into that stage, you can't help but find yourself in the second stage. And stage two is the struggle to give our lives away. Now, Royal House is clear. He says most of life is this stage. Most of life should be this stage. And like I said, if you've made commitments in the first stage, pretty quickly you find yourself in this stage. This is about learning to live for somebody else other than you. And by the way, if you haven't yet reached this stage, you're not yet living a distinctively Christian life. Because Jesus says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's one of the reasons we're calling people to serve even within the church, because we're trying to train you for how to live in the world. And so Jesus says, look, it's about giving our lives away. And Rollheiser says that's the second stage. Now, those of you who have had or have kids, you know this stage. You know, getting up in the middle of the night to, to feed that alien that's screaming in the cot beside you. That is learning to give your life away. Getting up in the morning and, and you know, hearing your alarm go off and say, oh, I've got a commitment to my job. I'm going to go in even though I'm feeling a little bit under the weather, I'm going to get over it. I'm going to suck it up and go in because that, I'm committed to that. Making commitments and keeping them. This is this stage. That's what this stage is about. And without committing to things, you won't ever get into a stage of developing in Christ-likeness. Going and doing a job even though you don't love it and keeping at it. Because you might, if you keep at it, just build a career. And a career doesn't come cheap. Caring for your aging parent because it's the right thing to do. It's what they did for you. That's the second stage. The third stage is the struggle to give our deaths away. Now, we don't talk much about this stage, which is, I think, something which is missing from our discipleship. But I guess this is just saying that the third and the final stage of discipleship is and maybe the crowning achievement of a Christian life is a good death, a death in faith, where our death becomes a blessing and a gift to those that we leave behind. That's the final stage of discipleship. And for some, preparation for that begins years before you die. Uh, you see this in the scriptures, don't you? People blessing the people around them before they die. This is what it looks like. The point is that we move through these stages. And the point is, and the point I'm really trying to make here. It's often seasons in the wilderness to help us make the transition. It's often times in the wilderness to help us make that transition. And the wilderness is tough. And it's even tough for Jesus. And if it's tough for him, it's bound to be tough for us. He ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them, he was hungry. And I love that phrase. I love that sentence in the Bible. It surely is the biggest understatement in the whole of Scripture. 
Famished is a little better, isn't it? Hungry, 40 days, 40 nights. I'm sure he was at least hungry. Yeah, Jesus was hungry. He was famished. Even God's own son got hungry in the wilderness. And I think what's coming out here, what, what I want to point your attention to, is that, that was, that's the point of the wilderness. The point of the desert is that you get hungry. The gift, the gift of the wilderness is hunger. The whole point is that you come out of it hungry for God. The whole point is that you figure out in the wilderness there are two ways to feed. One, to feed yourself in your own strength. I'm going to talk about that next week. And the second is to come to the end of your own strength and realize that the only proper, the only nourishing way to be fed is to feed on God. To live a life in God's own strength. And it is in the wilderness, typically, that we learn the difference between these two strategies. So what? I began by saying that the wilderness is a place of preparation and purification, and it is. But if we get it right, it also can become the place of prosper, prospering, the place where we prosper. The wilderness in God's grace can become a fertile place. Many of the gifts that we have to give to the world and to others are given to us when it's just us and him. When we learn to rely on his strength above our own, when we learn to trust and to worship him and him only, when we learn that it's more important than he's glorified than that we're comfortable. When we seek to worship his name, not to build our own name, to build his kingdom, not to seek our own empire. These are the things that God is doing for us in the wilderness. And these are the things I believe he wants to teach us because it's as he teaches us these things that the water that he longs to satisfy us with becomes a gift to those around us. I want to pray for us as we close.